Software engineering is a moving target. So much can happen year to year, it's hard to keep up. Take DevOps, for example. There are constantly new tools, acquisitions, or mergers, and new approaches to the methodology. It really takes vigilance to make sense of it all, especially the human challenges involved. How do you get people to talk with each other? As organizations break down silos between IT, business, and security, they have to get past all that baggage from the past and get them to drop old attitudes and grudges. Sometimes, something as simple as a bowl of candy can get teams to collaborate. You have my attention. I'm David Carty, site editor of Search Software Quality. And I'm Ryan Black, assistant site editor of Search Software Quality. And this is the Test and Release Podcast, where we speak with experts about software development and testing topics. In this episode, we're joined by our very own award-winning senior news writer, Beth Pariso. In her nearly 15 years of reporting experience at TechTarget, Beth has covered everything from storage to cloud. Now she focuses on a variety of topics, including CICD, DevOps, and infrastructure automation through methods like Kubernetes and containers. With Beth, we'll recap 2019, including some of the biggest news stories and interesting conversations she had along the way. We'll also discuss some trends to watch as we head into 2020. Here's our chat with Beth. Thanks for being here, Beth. Uh, first of all, let's start off with a really high-level question. Uh, you cover a lot of shows. It seems like you're constantly on the way to a conference or catching up from a conference. Uh, looking back at 2019, uh, what was the most interesting tech conference you covered, and what, so, uh, what kinds of conversations did you have there? I think the show in my world is still KubeCon. Mm-hmm. Um, that show has exploded in growth over the last um, three conferences that I've been to. 2017, it was about, it was like 3,500 people maybe. It filled up one wing of the Austin Convention Center in Texas. And then in uh, last year in Seattle, um, they had about 8,500 and a 2,000-person waiting list. They were not prepared for the onslaught of people who wanted to go to Seattle. Mm-hmm. And then this year, it was in San Diego at the much bigger convention center, and it was uh, 12,200, I think, wow. official attendance. Um, plus all the vendors and exhibitors. And um, I mean, it was just a madhouse. And the energy there is um, just frenetic. There's so much going on. Um, It seems like every company that's remotely attached to DevOps and cloud native technologies, which is kind of all of them, Mm -hmm. is there, um, users are there, and such a broad array of highly complex topics um, that there's a lot to talk about. So... um, And what's interesting about the conversations this year is, um, you know, in the past, even last year, the focus was on Kubernetes itself, the core platform. And what features was it still missing? Like Windows uh, host support, for example, last year was a big thing uh, because that got pushed out a release from when it was supposed to be out. And um, this year, there there was a uh, Kubernetes core uh, platform release, 1.17, today, actually. And it got no play at the conference it was um it was the focus was now on um what other things you need like service mesh Mm -hmm. uh was a big one um or uh multi-tenant security was another hot topic of kind of an advanced use case or what can you do with this now it's not just what is kubernetes and how does it work but okay how do we get to a specific workflow like GitOps? um you know, how do we how do we actually apply this to our business problems? So that's a huge leap in maturity for two calendar years. 
Actually, could I maybe to stay on the business point, uh, sure. we've been hearing more emphasis on biz DevOps or yeah. DevOps 2.0, mm -hmm. which, you know, in a nutshell, encourages more collaboration between IT, you, you, IT and the business teams. You know this, right. but but I'm wondering, what have you heard about how is this done in kind of a, a practical way without delaying production? And what right. are the sorts of impediments that usually pop up from what you've heard? Well, you know, if you talk to DevOps purists, you know, they object to things like DevSecOps and BizDevOps because their argument is that they've always considered those things, alignment with the business and, and secure code, to be part of DevOps. You mm -hmm. don't need a separate term. Um, but it's clear that enterprises have had to handle this digital transformation in phases. You have to eat the elephant one bite at a time. So a lot of it has been the technical folks getting their arms wrapped around the um, complex infrastructure automation and pipeline uh, technology, but it is starting to branch into broader conversations about how do we secure our enterprise, um, not just our servers, but our enterprise. Um, how do we avoid making the wrong kind of headlines, um, you know, from a breach? And also, how do we actually realize a return on all this investment? You know, it's not just a science project. You know, businesses need to transform for a reason. And so people are getting back to that initial mission, I think, because it is really complex technical work that they have to do just to establish the capabilities. But now, it, now it's about what do we what are the capabilities and what do we want to use them for mm -hmm. so um and you see this reflected not just in how people are using products but in what's going into products so for example atlassian um which has long been a really strong player in the uh defect management and software planning space the collaboration space which is at the far left side of that devops pipeline they acquired agilecraft this year which has become their jira align product that has a lot more to do with um, enterprise level portfolio management, a kind of bird's eye 30,000 foot view into all the projects and what they call value streams um, that are serving the business from a software delivery point of view. And there are a lot of um, experts out there um, putting out material and kind of guidelines, best practices around uh, what's called a project to product mindset. So instead of doing DevOps as a project um, and declaring victory, you look at it as a continuous process and you look at everything from your software delivery pipeline to your infrastructure platform as a product, just like whatever your business offers that you need to maintain in terms of its quality, that you need to update in terms of its relevance to your market, um, and that it's not something that's ever finished. Right, and this gets into value stream management, right. right? I mean, we see a lot of vendors in the space, CollabNet, Futura, TaskTop, uh, Zebia Labs. I mean, this seems like a really emerging space yep. and one that I imagine you'll be covering quite a bit in yep. the next year. Yep, um, CloudBees is another one with mm -hmm. their acquisition of Electric Cloud. Um, you know, and so, and a lot of the uh, Kubernetes and infrastructure automation platforms, not to mention the cloud providers, are also offering pipelines built in so that you're starting to get more cohesion on the technical side, sort of that middle of the DevOps process, but bringing it into line with the business itself, how ideas are generated, how they are picked up and moved from a piece of paper or word of mouth in a meeting to a deliverable. That's where I think the efforts will be focused next year. 
um, on that note, I did want to also ask you about like what sorts of things like you're hearing from people in terms of what they want from tools. And it sounds like mm-hmm. that might be that people kind of just want the whole package in one tool. They want to buy like whole platforms yes. of tools that include like everything under the sun. That's at least what industry analysts are telling me. Um, I know that having been on this beat since 2016, early on, it was a lot of sort of artisanal craftsmanship that went into building um, your own tool chain out of open source components. Um, and that was all well and good for early adopters that really had the skills. But as every business needs to at least have an app and a website, right? They, they at least need to do that amount of software development. Um, not everybody is going to have um, the skill set in-house to put together the platform and putting together an infrastructure or software delivery platform is not the ultimate goal for most businesses. Sure. Um, and so um, if you're a mainstream business, um, you know, it's not even necessarily worth the investment to put together your own platform. And for compliance purposes, um, a lot of them need to have someone to rely on for support, security, um, expertise in, in many different areas that it just isn't possible to source from within. And frankly, this stuff is so complicated. It's so sprawled out. There are so many just layers and layers of complicated things you have to get to work and then work together that they just want somebody to figure it out for you. So it sounds like it's less those people like who craft together their own tool chains that are disappearing. It's more just the overall pools getting bigger and the new entrance to the pool are people who kind of want your more generic. Right. Yeah. In terms of the market, yes. In terms of IT skills, that pool is not getting bigger. That's mm. another major problem that I started to cover this year um, that is you know, really weighing on the minds of enterprises across the board. Um, even the US Air Force um, you know, that has a lot of cachet, that's doing a lot of cutting edge things with things like Kubernetes and Service Mesh is struggling to find people with the right skill set. Mm. Um, And there are a lot of other kind of approaches and I guess sort of academic level theories about the best way to approach that. But the reality is that there just aren't enough people to build these things bespoke. So we were talking about before this, how you're expecting DevSecOps to be continue being a big area of coverage Mm -hmm. for you going into 2020. And uh, one of the things that I I was reading through some of your recent articles before, you know, this interview and you're talking about how one of the biggest unaddressed challenges is human error it's like much less people not having like the tools or like the actual like software to address the things it's like they're missing the signs or just like the workflow is not in place for them to actually like address and fix these you know vulnerabilities right yeah a security operations monitoring tool is only as good as the eyes that are looking at it Mm. You know, I mean, it, it can be flashing red alert at you, but if you don't know what you're looking at, you're not going to respond to it. Um, you know, and in a world where a company as technologically cutting edge as Capital One can have a high profile data breach, sometimes sometimes it's hard to, to imagine what chance anybody has. You know, I mean, um, because even as enterprises get better at securing their assets, people whose business is, is breaking in are getting better and more advanced. And I heard one expert estimate we're still about five years behind the attackers, as it is. And they're not stopping. They're not slowing down. Um, And it it gets back to that skills issue, um, which is where some people think AI will will bridge the gap. Um, But other people are trying to teach um, leadership 
things that didn't used to be considered inside the purview of IT, at least for certain people within IT, you know, VPs of engineering, CTOs, CIOs, um, and even kind of at the team level. Um, practitioners and consultants enterprises are starting to realize that the so-called soft skills are really crucial to the next phase of transformation, that it's not just about having the right tools in place, although that is important. It's also about what you do with those tools, how you respond to what those tools tell you, and the old adage of garbage in, garbage out, right? How do you align people to collaborate effectively on the product you produce so that it is not only delivered quickly, but also of high quality? Um, and quality includes secure. That's such a great point, too, because we know you can't preach DevOps. And that goes to the DevSecOps point, too. You can't preach DevSecOps. You can't preach shared responsibility for security. It's not that simple. It's got to be a, a really malleable sort of process, depending on your teams, your processes. Um, and, and that's, I think, where so many people struggle. And not right. something so intangible. I feel like it's like it's easy to come into, like, you know, like have a workshop one day and say, like, you all need to be better leaders. And, like, everyone's scratching their head. It's right. like, cool. There are, but there are more, there are experts in the field, like Gene Kim, for example, who wrote the Phoenix Project that kind of got this all kicked off. He has another more recent book called The Unicorn Project um, about methods, about tangible steps for organizing people and organizing teams. Organizational dynamics is an established field of study that can be brought to bear here. There are tangible methods. Um, and at DevSecCon, which was another really interesting conference for me this year, um, most of the discussion was about practical um, do's and don'ts and experiences um, and takeaways from the efforts of companies at the forefront of these things like Mozilla and Apple um, about how they organize people, um, about how they focused on um, not really saying that security is everyone's job as just giving security and IT ops and devs and the business all a seat at the table, that it takes everybody. Was that the conference where you heard the story about the one chief security officer putting uh, out the bowls of candy yes. in a security team's <laughs> yes. area? Yep. There was also discussion of cookies, yes. Yeah, for our listeners, so uh, Beth, uh, in one of her recent stories, uh, essentially relayed an anecdote about how one chief security officer would you know, put out bowls of candy in the security team's area. And they would actually get folks on other teams to stop by. And well, because they're by, like close by, they would then answer questions. Right. Or they would ask questions, not answer questions. What a lot of IT security uh, people within established enterprises have to overcome is not just a new way for them to work, but a new way to approach their colleagues in oh. IT ops and development. Um, unfortunately, the history is not just of developers throwing things over the wall to ops and saying, it worked on my machine, you handle it but also of IT security being the party of no mm. to everyone. Hey, we want to do this really cool thing. We just need to sign off on it. Well, no. Or even <laughs> the party that delays releases. Right. Right. There's so much baggage there. Yeah. So they've got to get in as soon in the process as possible, which means they have to be let in as soon as possible. But it doesn't hurt to catch more flies with honey mm. and to kind of address those historical kind of resentments um, and sort of start over um, in terms of how these different factions have traditionally treated each other. Um, and so it sounds really silly, 
but it's a little human thing. And I think a lot of times people want to talk about, you know, some kind of like super crunchy data science, Mm. you know, tech that's super awesome. And something like make sure people want to talk to you is is not I think it's a lot of a, a lot of people that went to school for computer science. Like, I don't think they imagined that they'd have to think about that sort of thing. Um, you know, and I'm not just saying that that's something that I'm paraphrasing what an IT person has told me is how they feel that, you know, I was told that there would be no, you know, social engineering on this, Mm. on this, uh, career. And it turns out that it's quite the opposite. So, um, you know, and getting that, encouraging that collaboration and that trust is hugely important. Um, and it often gets overlooked, but. And it can seem really silly and really simple, but it's hugely important. And I think companies are waking up to that. Well, it makes sense. It's just like if you go to work, you want to like have the sort of work culture where like you could talk to your coworkers about what you're working on. Right. But yeah. to your point earlier, I mean, it is intangible. Yeah. It's not something that there's a set of 10 steps mm-hmm. to accomplish. And it varies by organization. You know, one of the trickier problems in DevSecOps and security in general is asset inventory, knowing what you have, knowing who you are. Um, and I think that extends to every part of DevOps and um, Agile transformation. You know, first, you need to know where you are to know where you're going. And that's really hard. It's actually a really longstanding problem in um, security software is doing effective asset inventory. Uh, you spoke earlier about how uh, AI can bridge the gap with security a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Let's talk AI ops, another big area mm-hmm. that you uh, that you'll be covering in 2020. Um, as with any kind of implementation of AI, there's a little bit of a hype versus reality mm-hmm. element to it, right? So, uh, what's the real what's the reality with AI ops right now, and, and where do you see that going in the in the near future? Um, I think the the real world use case that I've seen in any kind of statistically significant um, use so far is people using machine learning and algorithmic um, analysis to reduce the um, fire hose of alerts that their IT teams get. So alert reduction and correlation is real. Mm-hmm. It, it is something that I know, um, you know, mainstream enterprises with compliance concerns like KeyBank, for example, um, are using, they use MOOCsoft and they feed it with a Kafka pipeline um, but, you know, data cleansing and data management um, is is an overlooked part of that because, again, garbage in, garbage out. Right. You can have all the whiz-bang algorithms in your AI ops software you want, but if you're feeding it garbage or you're feeding it unreliable data, it's not going to give you anything useful. So, you know, early adopters of AI ops tools have had to tackle the challenge of getting their data um, consistently stored in one repository that can be read by the AI ops tool so that it will deliver them useful information. Um, as far as the dream that started to get articulated probably in 2017 or so, maybe late 2016, about um, you know AI and algorithms and machine learning uh, replacing human intervention for things like incident response and uh, remediation, it's getting there, but I'd say it's still on the cutting edge, if not the bleeding edge. Um, some companies are more ambitious than others in what they believe they'll offer by this time next year. For example, Dynatrace 
um, just came out with um, with a set of services and an open source tool that that they talk about being um, autonomous cloud, and they talk about they use the term no ops, which had sort of become a dirty word, <laughs> at least in the search IT ops world. Sure. Um, yeah. But um, it's still not clear how far uh, automation will go. Right. And the other thing that's really clear is that IT guys, especially those who have been a lot around longer than like two years, don't trust it. Right. Because a vendor is coming to you saying, you know, we have these, you know, world-class eggheads with multiple PhDs that design this algorithm that's going to automate your IT ops so you can put your feet up and you can never worry about anything again. And, um, you know, it'll just take care of it for you. And they're, and they're saying, you know, the, these enterprise IT guys, the first question they ask is, what happens when your software screws up? Mm-hmm. Do I need data scientists on my team to figure out if it's your software or something else? You know, finger pointing is the first kind of time-honored problem that right. they anticipate having to deal with. Um, and of course, the idea is that no, you don't need your own data scientists because you're buying the work product of another company's data scientists being your vendor. But IT guys, I think, with good reason, they've been burned so many times oh, sure. with you know the latest software automation that's going to cure cancer and solve world hunger. You know that they that their question isn't even is that possible, but what happens when it fails? Right. I mean, that goes beyond the inherent skepticism toward AI or the fact that maybe it's being oversold or overmarketed. Right. I mean, that goes into how do we debug this problem right now yeah. that's happening right now? Right. However, the problem is there's a huge business mandate to transform in these ways that bring this stuff of unfathomable complexity into your world. And um, that unfathomable complexity is going to need to be automatically managed at some point because it's just beyond the capabilities of even 20 human beings working full time, (laughs) if not more, um, to actually get their arms around. But it's scary. It's not something that people trust um, whose business has essentially been risk management. Right. Um, You know, and then the next the next question that people ask is, what happens when and if your company goes away? And now I've got this thing in the middle of my data path between not just between my users and my infrastructure, but between me mm-hmm. and what's going on in the infrastructure. And all of a sudden your company goes out of business or you get acquired by a company that we consider a, a competitor. Example, Amazon, right? You know, like if I'm Walmart and I buy this little startup's product and then AWS picks them up, now what? Right. Um, yeah. And so they're... The, the whole AI ops idea is that it's just asking a lot of trust from people who've learned the very hard way so far in, in the history of this industry to trust no one. So, you know, they are facing a problem that they probably need some level of a leap of faith to, to solve between trusting new technology and trusting new work processes. But it's a big ask. So would you say uh, regarding AI, would you say people's uh, apprehension is more, is more that it kind of be a huge headache for them if they take this AI-driven product and it goes wrong right. and less that like, oh, like I'm really skeptical of this technology because it's going to replace my job? Yeah, I, I think that that whole thing, people have moved past that. People mm. understand that the magnitude 
that the complexity and the number of resources that their team, which is not getting any bigger, uh, is being asked to manage is beyond human capacity. That is true. I don't think anybody has to worry about not having enough work to do. And I think people are sold on the idea of doing more meaningful work than break fix and responding to help desk tickets and, you know, kind of like drone work all day. They, they want to become SREs. They want to work on higher level problems, which automation, when it works, can absolutely help them with. And I don't want to seem too, you know, pessimistic about the automation techs that are out there because I do know enterprises, mainstream enterprises, mm -hmm. including healthcare companies with lots of compliance to worry about that are putting these things to use. It's just when people talk about this idea of unsupervised AI algorithms mm -hmm. autonomously responding to incidents in your um, production infrastructure and letting you know that they're fixed, it's like that's a long way off. Not necessarily because the technical capabilities aren't there anywhere, but because people are not going to trust that sight unseen. Right. People are going to really have to test and they're going to have to take baby steps. They're going to have to put part of it into production and let a human push the button for a while. And, you know, and they do. They do eventually get to a point of, you know, gradually turning over that control. But it's not something that's going to happen quickly. Right. And to your point, I've almost found that people are almost more flippant about AI and automation taking over some of their responsibilities, right? It's like, yes, automate me away. I have enough else to do, you right. know? So it's almost having this um, this opposite reaction now where it's like, no, we want this uh, to advance to the to this next level. Um, but speaking of complexity, uh, you know, in this age of cloud-based mm -hmm. uh, distributed apps with microservices and serverless, orchestration with containers, all of this, um, observability is so important now. Mm -hmm. um, but it's such a difficult task uh, to try to tackle. How are you seeing that uh, emerge as a, as a topic, mm -hmm. observability, and how are people in the industry tackling uh, these kinds of apps? You know, again, in the original vision for Agile and DevOps, Fast feedback to developers and observability were part and parcel of the whole thing. But as with security and value streams, the focus has been on the core pipeline and infrastructure first, and it's expanding out. So um, monitoring and observability do tend to follow those initial efforts. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of the vendor space, it's really volatile. Um, you know, CICD tools are starting to kind of coalesce into a few large companies. Same with Kubernetes, although that market is still way too overcrowded. But, you know, a few of the big heavyweight vendors and some, you know, plucky upstarts are starting to make names for themselves in infrastructure automation and Kubernetes management. Um, but in terms of AI ops, observability, and IT monitoring, it's such a fragmented space. Um, I actually did a story... Um, just this week about companies to watch in 2020. And the people I talked to about it, you know, we, we kind of checked off the list of major, you know, areas within DevOps, DevSecOps, CICD, infrastructure automation, um, you know, and and I, I did bring up, you know, what about AI ops and observability? And I think the best answer I got about that was ask me this time next year, <laughs> because I think it's gonna take that long for there to be any kind of clear leader in this space, let alone a winner. Because you you have so many companies coming at it from so many different angles. You have companies that started on the infrastructure side, adding the um, application side. APM tools that have added the infrastructure side. 
Then you have specialists that come along with every wave of new technology that there is to observe, like serverless right now. Mm -hmm. um, and then those get bought up and they get consolidated. And you have you also still have container um, security specialists that are now expanding into hosts because you know they're not getting snapped up by the bigger fish the way that a lot of people thought they would. And so there's just all this churn, all this volatility, new companies coming to market every day. Um, that same analyst told me that I, fully half of his briefings at KubeCon were monitoring and observability vendors. Mm. Um, I talked to another analyst just today whose whole focus is monitoring and observability tools who said that there were like a dozen companies at KubeCon that she'd never heard of. Um, <laughs> so it's just so volatile. There are so many different angles, so many different players. Um, it's really hard to know in terms of, you know, market winners and losers where we'll be this time next year. Um, I think people, people are starting to embrace the need for automation. They are starting to get to the um, observability aspect that they have known is on their to-do list for a long time. Um, but that same analyst that saw those vendors pop up at KubeCon has told me that, you know, in her, in her experience working with enterprise clients, it gets worse before it gets better. You have a proliferation of tools in-house the way we have in the market, um, and confusion reigns. Things get more murky and less clear um, until a company finally decides to get a strategic hold on everything it has, streamline its tools, um, you know, find one tool to rule them all, and send the other data sources into that. Have that fabled single point, single pane of glass, which is a term I've hated for a decade, <laughs> but it, you know. Um, and, you know, start to get a handle on things, start to just kind of whittle things down to what's really important. But the process of getting there gets muddier, actually, with more data and more observability information before it gets clearer. Right. Well, you have quite the background covering emerging markets with your experience with cloud and with containers. And you yeah. are our resident container expert. And I'm on the container beat. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and your reporting on the Docker Marantis deal was very interesting. Uh, lots of great insight in there. Uh, now that the dust has settled a little bit, uh, how does this look for the container market uh, moving forward? So it's interesting because the that Docker Marantis deal was both Inevitable. I mean, I had been talking to people and hearing speculation about Docker being an acquisition target for quite a while. Um, and I had been hearing rumblings and criticisms of Docker's business strategy since 2016. It, you know, it's not it's not news that, um, you know, people had questions about Docker's business strategy and where that where they'd ultimately end up, especially as Kubernetes ate the world. However, I don't think anybody saw Marantis being the one to acquire them. Right. <laughs> um, and I mean, I've known Marantis since, since the early OpenStack days. I've known Boris over at Marantis. I mean, I've been running into him at conferences for probably 10 years. <laughs> and that name would never have crossed my mind. Right. Um, and um, so it was shocking, but it wasn't. Um, Docker has been sort of on the bubble, as they say, um, for a while with Docker Enterprise. Um, at the end of 2017, they did concede to Kubernetes, essentially, and, and pledge their support for it. But the problem is that OpenShift had already beaten them to the punch. And Cloud Foundries had the same problem. They got to Kubernetes integration um, with Kubo um, in 2017, but OpenShift made that move in 2014. OpenShift version 3 
not and they didn't like like uh cloud foundry and um docker both continued to offer their own orchestrators alongside kubernetes like you know as a choice or because they didn't want to just throw away what they'd already done but i'm sure yeah red hat got in so early with Kubernetes and so early in the life of OpenShift that they did just throw away their previous orchestrator and just go whole hog into Kubernetes and that turned out to be the right bet. And they still have the largest market share among enterprises and they've got a head start. Um, and there were also lots of, I, I heard consistently people having technical issues with Docker's uh, universal control plane um, that backed Swarm and then their uh, Kubernetes implementation under Docker Enterprise, some issues at scale um, that, that companies consistently reported. Um, and so, um, you know, as far as how it's going to affect the market further, I think it's not necessarily good for the market to have it be kind of a Kubernetes monopoly. Um, Monopolies are never good. <laughs> however, however, it's not a proprietary corporate monopoly. It's mm -hmm. a monopoly belonging to a an open source uh, platform that is governed in the open. Mm -hmm. So that's better than it could be. Mm -hmm. um, but and it's also again, it's not really about the container orchestration platform. Mm -hmm. It's about what people are doing with it. So for it to be a standardized kind of agreed upon component is going to enable a lot of things that have been a long time coming in IT. I mean, as an old storage reporter, interoperability is is one of the, you know, longstanding issues in, in IT in general. Um, and the promise that containers and Kubernetes have for, you know, multi-cloud mobility and for um, things like cloud bursting and follow the sun and all these, you know, kind of pie in the sky things that companies like VMware were talking about 10 years ago. Um, you know, is really great. And you do need to have some sort of standardization for that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, but it also means that you have a lot of vendors. I think there are 95 Kubernetes distros that mm -hmm. CNCF uh, recognizes now. You have, I mean, name the major IT vendor. They're in the market with a Kubernetes distribution. Even HPE just came out with one um, at KubeCon. Cisco, IBM, Red Hat, Pivotal, VMware, um, which, you know, obviously falls under Dell. Um, I mean, and then you have uh, Rancher and you have, you know, a million bazillion little startups nobody's heard of. And you have, you know, I mean, and then if you talk, expand it to things that are like Kubernetes accessories like Service Mesh, I mean, you know, it, it's it's still just a huge universe of really complex technology. And this um, is just over the last year or two, right? right? I was going to so, say, it sounds like there's more of them than, than there are cryptocurrencies. <laughs> <laughs> so so maybe a little simplification, a little standardization is a good thing. But, you know, the idea that this kind of major, um, this major player in containerization has all but disappeared, at least in the form that we know it, um, I think it's a sign of how fast this market moves now. And I think it's also um, the the warning I think here is in the open source and open core business model. Um, open source is all the rage. Uh, one of the things that happened was Docker tried to kind of claw back some of its differentiation into its proprietary product and they got killed for it um, when they tried to build Docker Swarm into Docker Engine. Um, but that also meant that in the long run, they couldn't figure out how to make money on this technology that they had made ubiquitous. Right. And everybody wants open source, but 
then what happens when your open source vendor you come to rely on, say for IT automation, that is too complex for you to pull back apart and understand, as we were talking about, can't make money. Right. So there's kind of a two-edged sword there, right? And it, it to me, it's like, I mean, Docker took so much funding. They were such a huge force to be reckoned with even a year ago. And to see, you know, the rise and fall be so meteoric, um, you know, it does kind of raise, I think, broader questions just about the open source craze and vendor stability that um, I think enterprises really do need to consider carefully. Right. Certainly not what we would have expected four or five years ago when no. Docker made containers Absolutely ubiquitous, not. as you mentioned. No. Uh, well, this has been great. A lot of uh, great topics we've Thank been you. able to discuss here, and thanks for joining us here. Thanks for having me. Be sure to read Beth's work on searchsoftworkquality.com, as well as our sister site, searchitoperations.com. Subscribe to this podcast for more discussions on application development and testing topics, and be sure to follow us on Twitter, at SoftwareTestTT.